Welcome to Order Up, the restaurant operations podcast brought to you by Ops Analytica. Hey, it's Tommy. Um, if you don't currently have an ops management platform like Ops Analytica in your business, then I hate to be the one to tell you, but you are losing to your competitors that do. It is 2021. If you honestly believe that the world we live in today with technology the way it is, that you can still compete with other chains that have real-time visibility into their operations, that have the ability to identify issues, to crowdsource solutions, and are able to then roll out process changes in hours or a day or two versus weeks or months, if you think you can beat them, then you are crazy, right? I see what our clients are doing with our platform every day. They are incrementally getting better because they manage their entire system like a GM manages a restaurant. You cannot compete with that. Data is not going away. Technology is not going away. You cannot operate like this is 1985 anymore. You have to get real about your operations. You can't back into it by looking at customer satisfaction and food costs and labor costs and all that stuff. You got to have real-time ops data so you can manage your business better. And Ops Analytica is dying to help you make that transformation. Uh, Check us out at opsanalytica.com. Hey there, Order Up Show. It's Tommy. I'm back, man. We are cranking out the interviews these days, which makes me happy. And uh, I am super pleased to welcome Azim Saju to the show today. How are you doing there, Azim? Tommy, I'm doing great. It's a sunny August day in Florida and excited to be on your show with you. Yeah, so 100% humidity, 100 degrees. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Walk a foot, sweat a bucket. Oh, my gosh. So uh, and you're from you're calling in from o- Ocala, Florida. Where is that in the state? Not really familiar with Ocala. Ocala's probably in the central portion of the state, about an hour north of Orlando, 30 minutes south of Gainesville, where the University of Florida is. Sure. Uh, and, and very central to the state, uh, equidistant to the east and west coast beaches and, you know, and known for its horses. Yeah. You know what? Actually, I think one of my wife's uncles was living out there, and uh, and then they had like what his daughter-in-law or his should be daughter-in-law. Yeah, his daughter-in-law was an actual like horse vet, so that might actually make sense now that I think about it. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. Um, well, wonderful. So here's the deal: we are going to go through the five questions today, Azim, and we're going to get started because I'm dying to know more about you. So, number one. Explain what you do today and then take us through your career progression from your first job until today. Yeah, um, I so I am the president and CEO of a company that's called Hotel Development and Management Group. We abbreviate it and refer to it in its abbreviated version as HDG Hotels. We manage, develop, acquire hotels. Um, in a nutshell, franchised hotels uh, is what we do in a nutshell. Um, I started my career uh, graduating from my professional career. I graduated from the University of Florida College of Law and practiced law for several years. Uh, My brother was 
in the hotel business, running our family business at the time, and asked me to join him back in 2001. And I joined him, uh, agreed to do it shortly after, immediately after or right on 9-11, if my memory serves me correct. Wow. Um, and we began a process where we began to do some renovation work to our existing hotel. Um, and we built a conference center, a car wash, and then acquired a site to develop a hotel. Um, and that meant, you know, dealing with lenders on the first hotel and creating a package for our lenders so that we could find financing for it. Uh, once we found a found the financing, um, it meant, you know, liaising with the lender, um, the appraiser, uh, all the different trades that are involved in doing the due diligence of a successful hotel development, such as soil studies and environmental studies and feasibility reports and, you know, zoning studies and uh, traffic studies and getting liaising with all those vendors to get that in place, um, along with getting our permits in place and dealing with the franchisor. Our first new build was a sleep-in. Um, so our franchisor was Choice Hotels and developing all of that out. As we began to grow, the added wrinkle in this became, we added, we began to add small equity partners that were friends and family. Um, and, and, and beginning to deal with them as it related to, you know, what the equity requirement was, explaining to them how the math behind that requirement, walking through the forecasts with them, expected returns, um, and beginning to hone our skill set, our development skill set as it related to that while continuing to build out our processes and our people as it related to hotel management. Um, we built four hotels um, from the 2005 to eight range, the last of which opened the day the markets crashed. And then that required another type of skill set, which was conveying sometimes challenging news as it related to the hotel's performance. The hotel industry in Florida during the Great Recession was really hit hard. Sure. Um, and there was a big disparity between what we had forecasted and what the performance was. And being honest with the delivery of that message, but doing so in a manner that created hope and belief that showed we had a plan to continue to run and maintain those assets, um, did not made sure that we did not communicate a sense of defeat and despondency because people had trusted us with their livelihoods, whether it was our team members, our lenders, our equity partners, and figuring out and navigating through that. And also having the belief to continue to invest in building out our processes, especially as it related to timely and timely and transparent reporting of our financials. Sure. So that there were never any gaps in our reporting and 
you know, whether it was good news or bad news or sometimes ugly news, but our lenders every month saw what was going on. Um, we were able to get out of that um, and work our way out of it. And by, by doing so in what we thought was a responsible manner, it allowed us to build a brand and a reputation of, you know, that these guys are credible, they're hardworking, um, they meet their obligations, um, they face the reality of the business and industry, which is cyclical, and we connected with a couple of smaller private investment funds and began to grow our portfolio. Um, and we grew to 10 hotels in 2015 and realized that the portfolio growth had far outpaced the people and processes growth. So again, we dug our heels in deeper in terms of further building out our processes as it related to accounting systems, uh, team member engagement, people and culture um, and finance and our office facilities. And, and, and again, you know, really put a lot of effort there. And then starting from 2017 really put the pedal to the metal and from 17 to date we doubled our portfolio size wow so you're about 20 20 locations right now yeah next week we are closing on a hotel in jacksonville which would give us 21 locations oh cool wow that's pretty exciting and it's you and your brother and and other family members too or is it just you and him or is he still in the picture or yeah my brother navros is our company's founder um hdg's founder i'm the president and ceo uh we have as i mentioned earlier you know about building out our people and our processes we actually have an ex seven member executive committee which includes navros and me um that is involved in all of the major decisions as it relates to the hotel management and development um, of the hotels in our portfolio. Um, and that has proven to be priceless as we've swam out into waters that are not, that are uncharted for us in terms of the size of our portfolio and the, and, and, and the growth. Oh, cool. So, um, real quick, so uh what are do you have you stayed loyal to choice or are you kind of across the board now are you with a lot of different brands um we're big fans of choice hotels i i chaired their owners franchisee advisory council owners association for three years um but we do franchise with all the other major brands uh, hilton marriott um ihg my brother's on the ihg global board um, which is their version of a franchisee advisory council um, sure. and best Western Wyndham um, and stay engaged with all of the major brands in our industry. It's a small world um, and, and, and the relationships with our franchisors really matter to us and different brands work well and based on the setting and the market and location and where they are in their, in, in their brand journey. Um, so not one, to answer your question, we, we franchise with all the major brands. So I'm very familiar with restaurant, um, franchising. I work in that world quite a bit. I'm curious how, 
uh, prescriptive are the hotel brands? How much control do they exercise over your day-to-day operations? Um, I'd love to learn more about that. Yeah. Um, they provide, so the day-to-day operations are left to us. The franchisor provides training, you know, training portals where you can have your team members train on the PMS system or how to effectively clean the room or handling customer service issues. So they provide training. They provide a national reservation system mm-hmm. um, that's, you know, recognized. Um, they provide national marketing programs. Um, some marketing is localized to state. Um, they provide support in additional support as it relates to periodically visiting the hotels and walking hotels, property improvement plans as it relates to furniture and fixtures and equipment and condition. And um, they provide quality assurance inspections for us to make sure we're maintaining that level of quality. But the day-to-day operations, they leave to us as franchisees. And then I assume too, you have to buy through their portal, right? So you have to get the Marriott soaps or the, you know, Hilton soaps and shampoos. You can't just do whatever you want. Or do they give you some leeway in that? It depends on, so it depends on the flag you pursue within the franchise system. There's some flags now like Ascend Collection, or I think uh, Hilton has a brand that's called Tapestry. Um, Marriott has similar brands and IHS brands where they're, they're called soft brands, where they give you a lot of leeway as it relates to what you buy and how you accessorize the rooms and d- design the hotel. Sure. The more traditional brands like Holiday Inn Express, Hampton, Comfort Suites, they're more prescriptive in terms of design and brand identity items and pillows and towels and soaps and all the stuff that you use. Because it seems like you get some economies of scale if you could, you know, buy from one soap vendor, one shampoo vendor, one towel vendor, you know, you maybe, you know, to outfit a bunch of your buildings versus having, you know, I have a couple of Marriott's and I got to buy just a couple of sets of towels for these, you know, that kind of a thing. Um, yeah, we, we, we do try to use our scale to leverage off of purchasing power, but there is some differentiation between the brands. Of course. And um, let me ask you this. You're going to go build a hotel. Say I'm going to build a courtyard. Um, Greg and Marriott say, hey, I, I got to say for a courtyard. Do they just hand you basically the, or do you have to pay for the building, like the, the architecture documents? Or do they just go, cool, build a courtyard. Here's everything you need. Give it to your contractor. These are the guys we recommend. And they just give you all the design and stuff for it. Like, do they have that to a level where you know, this is the exact pad I need. This is every like design document, everything I need to purchase for this size hotel so that it's just easy peasy. Or do you have to, is it like everyone's kind of custom? Um, so let's say it's a courtyard, which, you know, we've developed a Spring Hill Suites by Marriott and, yeah. and they're similar. Um, they will provide you with like exterior elevations, um, a set of plans, but those plans do not include mechanical, electrical, and plumbing. Hmm. Um, because that's unique to 
the municipality based on the regulatory the regulations of that municipality and states um sure. and, and so it's unique to the locality in which the hotel is developed um they will give you choices in terms of design schemes or you can customize it but if you customize it they're going to want to review and approve it uh, they will review the site plan for parking and accessibility um, um, but you are going to need to retain to answer your question you would need to retain an architect and civil engineer to to customize those plans and get them permitted and approved sure <laughs> by the area in which you're going to do business they also would want to see your background as it related to hotel management and development they tend to be um they tend to really scrutinize that because they want quality developers and operators to run their brands and maintain their quality and the consistency of their quality so you guys own you'll soon own 21 hotels that you own own right but then are you uh, acting as a management company for other developers as well so we own 18 of the hotels in our portfolio three we serve as the third party management company on got it cool wonderful wow i feel like i've, I've already learned a ton because <laughs> i've talked to tons of hotel guys on the show um but i've never really dug into this part of things and and you know this is uh you know, I, in our area, we've got tons of hotels going up right now because they added a bunch of hospitals in the area, you know, and I think a lot of the developers are obviously looking five to 10 years in the future. And you obviously have models about, hey, if they're going to build this many houses, then we need this many hotel rooms in that area, that type of thing. So um, I've been watching all these hotels spring up and I was just kind of curious. And, and like all franchising, I would assume I'm putting words in your mouth, like all franchising, you know, part of why you franchise is to not have to reinvent the wheel 5,000 times, but really to get kind of the operational, to, to get the franchisor provide you with as much value as possible for your franchise fees. And you really focus on hiring the team, developing the people and operating on a daily basis and getting your volume high. I'm assuming that's the same for the hotel, um, for the hotels as well, right? Yeah, Tommy, I think you said it better than I did. You know, the <laughs> franchisor provides you with the basic model, but in terms of hiring, uh, training, onboarding, uh, HR, day-to-day um, -day, day -day related operations, uh, shift checklist, that's all on us. You're absolutely yeah. right. And then the more you can systematize that, because I was just having this conversation yesterday with another guest, but the more you can systematize your operations and get real data and make data-driven decisions, the more successful you're going to be. So, I mean, that's just, you know, that's just what great operators do. And that is, that is absolutely correct. The more you're looking, you know, have a process in place to review your financials, your, your rate strategy, the distribution channels that you're using to sell your rooms, um, you know, the HR training, the safety training, the more you can have that systematized, um, the more likely you're gonna be successful in the business. Sure. Let me ask you this, you're with the different badges and hotels. 
like, so I'm a Marriott guy. That, that's just, I've, I've, you know, I was a stand-up comic for a lot of years and I slept in a lot of gross motels. And so like when I started to get some money, I'm like, I, I, and my mom was always a Marriott Marquee Club member. So I just, I jumped on the Marriott bandwagon. And so I've been very loyal um, throughout the years from travel, consulting, all that stuff. Um, but the different brands, obviously they have different, you know, they have different spots in the marketplace. They have different, uh, they hold different spots uh, from a brand perspective, I suppose, different spots within the pricing range. Is there one hotel that you find is more profitable than another? Um, you know, and I'm just curious, like, yeah. Uh, the answer to your question is there's not one hotel that we find more profitable than the other. It, it really depends on market, you know, what type of demand, room night demand, is it transient, is it recreational, is it business, is it leisure, um, is it a destination type market? Um, it, it depends on a, the, the, what construction-wise, what's happening in that market, just a multitude of factors um, that I don't think there's one brand that from a profitability standpoint or just an overall standpoint trumps the others. It also depends on your strat ownership strategy, right? If you're, sure. are you, are you going to be in it as an owner operator and, and plan to own the hotel for a long time? Are you looking to sell the hotel and flip it? Um, it, it depends. Some of it also depends on that too, as to, how you maximize your returns and profitability. Well, and honestly, I guess your geographic footprint as well, right? Like if you have a, you know, Motel 6, you have a Hampton Inn, and then you have, you know, a Marriott and then a Hyatt and all the way up, and but you have them all in the same area, then you basically got a slice of the, of the uh, fair share of supply, or fair, you know what I mean, around every price point in the area. So then you can, you know, yeah, there's just different ways to look at it. So I, I could see where that's not an easy question to just answer, you know? Yeah. Cool. Okay, so let's go on to question number two. Uh, what's the big project or initiative that you're working on right now? Uh, so several from a project. Let's start with projects. So <laughs> we have a closing next week. Um, we are under construction on a town place suites. It's Marriott's extended stay brand. Um, we hope to be starting construction in the very near future on a comfort suites um, from an initiative perspective. Uh, we are, we've reached, we've achieved many, if not all of the objectives in our previous strategic plan. Um, and so we are in the process of starting the process we're starting the process of creating our new strategic plan over on what the major goals are for the next three to five years um we continue to look for ways where we can let better leverage off of technology to drive efficiencies especially as it relates to our accounting department you know how we deliver financials i think that's going to that's in the process of changing um, so that it's not in a traditional 
attachment to an email format. Um, and then, you know, continuing to build off of some of the things we have in place from a people and culture perspective that have worked for us in terms of our mission, vision, and core values. We have, you know, weekly corporate huddles. Um, we have every year a vision 2021. Next year it'll be 22, talking to our team members on the causes, the charitable causes we support and soliciting their feedback on that. Um, uh, we plan to, as things open back up, hopefully we plan to have our partners banquet, which we were doing every 18 months until COVID hit sometime in early 22. Um, and continuing to have a growth mindset as it relates to our company um, and our people, especially. That's cool. So I've added a new question to the podcast and I've only asked it three times, but uh, so I'm going to give it to you too. Uh, and the question is what separates a great hotel management development business from the rest of the group for everyone else? What, what are the skills or the, you know, the attributes of a great company? Uh, culture. Um, I think everything flows from that. You know, what's the thing? Culture eats strategy for lunch. Probably eats it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I think that when you have a culture and a mission, vision, and core values that everyone really tries to live by, um, it creates an environment where your team members know that they're part of something that's greater than just trying to maximize shareholder return. Sure. Um, they're in an environment where, you know, there's a true effort to positively impact their lives and the communities in which we do business. There's an effort to be transparent with them as to the how the business works and its finances so they feel respected and you know don't feel like the don't feel like they're don't feel like their work um, and their sweat equity is being taken for granted. Um, and, and it starts from there. Um, and I think that flows down to your people. And then it flows, it impacts your ability to execute and deliver value back to all of the major stakeholders in your organization. Cool. You know, so, so far, everybody said culture, um, which is cool. And I've always... You know, I, when I was a manager, my management strategy was always to just thank everybody for their hard work and try to reward people on the spot with small stuff, you know, mm -hmm. whatever it might be. That was always kind of my like philosophy, you know, and that's how I just tried to keep people happy, but also productive. You know what I mean? Yeah. When you thank people and they feel appreciated and they'll work harder for you. And when you can give them a little bit of a reward, and it doesn't have to be crazy. I mean, like at PF Chang's, they'd be like, hey, let me buy you fried rice for dinner. Yeah. You know, versus the, the shift meal. I mean, that doesn't cost, you know, a buck or two, right? Whatever. But just doing that makes people go, 
hey man i hope tommy's working so that i can work with him because he takes good care of me yeah. and you know when they get pissed off by a customer or whatever else they're not as quick to leave and walk across the street and try something new because they they feel like hey you know i got somebody here who's actually kind of looking out for me um, tommy you make a great point in the sense that creating an environment where your team members feel their leadership is there to look out for them. And I think that that's just as important. In some instances, more important than training on skills. Yeah. While skills are important and training and retraining on skills, you know, how to check in a guest, how to make an adjustment, what's the policy on groups is, is, is important it's very important and I, and I don't want to minimize it, but sometimes as leaders, just as important is just checking in on them as people and caring about them as people, a genuine, Hey, how are you doing? You know, how, how, how are you doing? Or, Hey, let's, you know, let's take a walk and walk the hotel. And I want to find out how your kids are doing. How was the first week of school? Um, Noticing small things, um, whether it's a new pair of glasses or, 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 or you know, a, a, a new, you know, picture on their desk. And, and those small things really matter in terms of building them up as people, making them feel part of something that's bigger than just a bottom line. Um, Absolutely. And I would also tag on to that too, especially on the training thing. So I have a real beef with training. Not and not and, and by the way, I 100% get that training is 100% necessary in the world. But like my software platform is all about helping people manage repeatable process and um, and 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 taking the guesswork out of what I should be doing and just providing those those checklists and those job aids in a digital format where you can get some accountability and some data, right? And, you know, I came up in the 80s, I started working in this industry in the 80s, you know, making sandwiches and I have a hotel restaurant degree and all this stuff. But the thing about training is, is that the way we've always relied on training in the hospitality industry, A, because it's important for delivering consistent experiences, but B, because it was the one thing we could control uh, from corporate perspective, right? We couldn't control op what was happening operationally because that technology, my technology has only existed for, you know, the last 10 years, really since tablets and smartphones. So prior to that, you had no real easy way to see what was happening operationally in your business. And so because you couldn't do that, everyone just goes, well, shoot, well, let's just focus all of our time and energy on training. But where I feel like training is, Training is important because you need to teach people what to do, but like, I don't think we should be training people on how to memorize. Like we used to spend a lot of money and time onboarding people and getting them to memorize things as a part of training. And now I think with turnover the way it is and, all, and the way the world is and with technology and the ability to put technology in people's hands, I feel like training should be more of a familiarization and then the memorization should be coming through the repetition of doing the position and we should be focusing more on the systems that we use. And then, so what I would train people on is how to use my system and then use my system to dictate their day-to-day, -day, you know, sort of uh, 
they did it a job, right? And then the, the repetition and the memory will come because you spend a ton of money training people to memorize stuff and then they leave and you're back at stage one. Also too, you know, when you have a system like mine, just as an example, if you wanna change something, you just add something to the list. And if they are just trained on how to use the list or how to use the system, then small little changes don't need to be rolled out with an all hands meeting, you know, at 7 a.m. on a Saturday. You can just go, hey, we're now adding this spray to the bathroom and that's it. We're good. You know what I mean? So mm. I feel like the, that the, L, the LMS companies, the learning management system companies have focused so much time on, hey, we got to teach all these people how to do it. They got to memorize how to do all this stuff. But yet there's no accountability uh, in most organizations on whether they're actually following the training on the day to day. And also if it's actually effective and working. And so I feel like we have to do a little bit less on the initial training and more on the operational system part of things, merge them together. So we know if the training is effective in the operations and we can also identify the operational issues and then determine, is that because our process is broken or is that because our training was bad and go back and, you know, re they kind of go hand in hand. Right. So that's my rant on that. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, I I'm I, I I would when I'm please send me some information on that uh, on your technology I'd like to look at it. Oh, absolutely, and and uh, yeah, and I didn't mean to like monopolize that part, but that training thing is really tough, right? Because the average server is only making it forty five days right now, if they're even applying for jobs. So you spend like when I was a, a national trainer for PF Chang's and I was a trainer at a restaurant. We would spend like a week training people on all these different aspects. And we would also train a lot on culture, which is another thing. I don't think there should be any training on culture. I think culture is experienced by the management team in the building. And the best way to train culture is not to spend a day or two having them memorize what the founder's vision was. It's to do those daily pre-shift meetings where we can experience the culture from the managers and our team members versus trying to say, because, you know, people are just looking for where you're lying, right? So that they can justify not trying as hard or not coming on time or whatever it is. So if you say, hey, we've got this amazing culture, we're the best place ever to work, and they don't experience that on a daily basis, then you're, then basically you're, you're, you're not practicing what you preach. And it gives them a license to justify not working as hard as maybe they could or coming late or whatever other thing, right? So culture training to me, it should be, we really invest in you and I hope you'll see that over the next two, three, six months that we really do care about you. And if you don't feel like we care, come talk to me. That's yeah. that's my culture training, you know? Moving on. <laughs> Yeah, Tommy, you 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 make a really good distinction in terms of, you know, culture training versus skills training, and 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 it is two different types of training. I mean, culture training, you're right, is more experience based, um, you know, and what they're experiencing, um, as opposed to skill set training, which is more, you know, repeat after me. You know, let yeah. me let me walk you through how to check in a guest um, let me walk you through a third-party credit card authorization and how that works or how you book a group 
Culture is, is, is a training of experience. You know, it's, it's, you know, our people, when you have your morning huddles, I mean, are, are, are people, do people have smiles at those huddles? Yeah. Uh, is there a sense of positive energy there and, and just a good feeling there? Um, it's, it's the way people dress and the way they're holding themselves and those small things that you can really experience a company's culture through. Absolutely. We, I worked at a mall uh, called the Grove in Los Angeles, and it's a very mm -hmm. fancy mall in, in Hollywood. And we went through that Ritz Carlton training program, the one they had developed that the company had developed it, was going out and selling that to people. And it was all about the daily huddle, and it had that, you know, the 15 steps of exceptional service. And each day we would go through and learn a step. And then there was a story about how a team member had executed that step. And it could just be as simple as, you know, I saw Bob the other day, instead of pointing, that's where the gym is, he walked the guests to the gym, you know what I mean? And got make sure they could get in with their key, you know, those kinds of things. And then it was always, you know, hey, these are the things that are happening today. And then it was always a joke or a funny story at the end. And we used to write those up for the, for the property every day. And I thought that was such an effective pre-shift meeting um, because it was just all positive and all about recognition and all just a, a constant reminder of our, the core values, you know, mm -hmm. um, and, and express through an example, not, and not like a fake example, like a real example at the, at the locations, either coming from comment cards or, you know, Hey, this is where we fell down on this. You know, the bathroom was dirty and this lady got very mad or, you know, whatever it was. I, I, I love that pre-huddle. I, I thought about one time starting a business where I just generated those pre-shift huddles and got everybody kind of on like a, a core group of 15 hospitality values that could be expressed at hotels or restaurants and then just generate that content so that every, you know, you just got a PDF or an email every day you could print off that said, here's your huddles for today. Insert, you know, pertinent information here about your business, you know, but, uh, like so many great ideas that I've had, I just didn't have time to do it, man. <laughs> <laughs> that damn, the, that damn core business is just getting in the way of just keeping nothing done. Um, what is the one thing in the industry or your business that's keeping you up at night? If there is any, <laughs> oh, there's a lot, especially the way I'm wired. Um, <laughs> so, the, uh, there was maybe 10 years ago now, but definitely in the last five, six, seven years, there was a CNBC did a great video, 45 minute thing on, on Marriott and their growth and their story. Um, and Bill Marriott in, in that said, you know, you can't have hotels without leverage. So there are many things that keep me up at night. One is that as we continue to grow um, the amount of leverage, and risk we take grows with that. And there's leverage risk. There's the responsibility you have towards your people. Um, we are not the type of company where when it gets slow or we hit a downturn, um, where we just, we lay people off who are not deserving who are undeserving of being laid off. Um, we're not that company. So that 
in an industry that is very cyclical and subject to a lot of factors that are outside of our control, um, that keeps me up at night as it relates to our people. Um, and, and keeping them grow, not just employed, but employed in a company where there's opportunity for them to grow with us, should they so desire. Um, what keeps me up at night is, you know, um, the, 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 the risk also associated with the business, whether it's, you know, slip and falls or someone not having the experience, stay, a guest experience not being optimal um, for whatever reason, um, uh, the safety of our team members and of our guests keep me up at night. What keeps me up at night also is how, I don't think in the, I think in the US, you either have to have a model that's growing in terms of top line revenue and portfolio growth, if you're gonna keep growing your people, or you have, you're a single unit or maybe multi-unit, but not our size level. Um, and, and that's what, you want to do, or you're thinking of an exit um, and how to sell that business. Um, we are obviously in growth mode and continue to be in growth mode. Um, I don't think we're large enough yet to have the scale that we truly need to do some of the stuff that we really want to do, um, but we're getting there. But it's how we get there and do so in a manner that's responsible and to our investors, both, you know, our equity investors and our sweat equity investors and our team members and manage that growth in a, in a responsible way, um, but continues to grow our portfolio and continue to have a growth mindset so that our people can grow with us. And, and juggling all of that while maintaining, you know, our hotels and, you know, it, 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 those big picture items um, keep me up at night and or if my mind was a stovetop, yeah. those pots stay, whether it's the back burner, middle burner, front burner, but they're constantly on the burner. Sure. Well, in my last company before my current one, we had this very unique skill set that no one had. So we had to train everybody. It was a software program um, that we were experts in and we had, it just wasn't very widespread. So you just couldn't go out. It wasn't like SQL or Excel or something where you could just go find 10 billion people and plug them in. It was a, it took six months to a year to train somebody up on how to use this software correctly. So when we did have downturns like 2012 or, uh, you know, 20, um, yeah, like 2012, the 2012 election, like, period of time when all business just kind of stopped because no one knew it was going to go on the Obamacare and all these things. And, you know, we, we had no revenue coming in into the similar position. Like we had some, we had some legacy revenue coming in, but we weren't booking new business, but we couldn't fire anybody because we couldn't afford to let these guys go. We just had to suck it up. Right. And just burn through cash to keep them employed and try to make them productive and, and reinvest in them and training and also in marketing efforts knowing that we would come out of that. But, 
you know, we just couldn't let him go because it would cost too much to get him back later. Mm. And so that's just a trick in cash flow management. But when you when you hold back that cash, so you do have that parachute, if you will, to protect yourself in this very cyclical business like you've been talking about, well, then your investors don't see the same returns either. So it is a constant juggling act of going, hey, look, really, your money is made 28%, even though you're only showing maybe 20, and I'm just making numbers up, obviously, because I'm holding 8% of that return back over here, because I know that in the next four years, we're going to have really bad year. And in that really bad year, I don't want to get derailed and have to slow everything else down. So I'm holding your investment back in the form of cash or near security. So I can then invest back in this business, but that's a juggling act. Right. And you have to have the right investors for that. There's some private equity funds that would be like, Nope, don't care. Someone else's problem. I want my money. I'm trying to get out of here. You know what I mean? So that, I mean, it's just that if that mentality has to, has to influence all the decisions you make from hiring, firing, development, who are my investors? What banks am I going to go with? I mean, it, that, and that's culture too, right? The culture's driving the decision-making. Yeah. We, we try to be, as it relates to investors and you, you hit Tommy hit the nail on the head. Well, I'm, you know, I could give you X return, but I'm forecasting a downturn. Um, yeah in the next two years and and I want to hold some back for reserve or I'm forecasting that we're going to need some, you know, new furniture, new or, or some major CapEx. And so I'm going to hold back X. You have to have the right investor with the right mindset for that. Um, if not, it can get it can get really challenging. Um, we require that if you're going to invest with us, you're going to come visit us at our corporate headquarters. You're going to get a tour. Um, we're going to go through with you all the major points that all the major touch points of our relationship um, from how we report to what we do from a people and culture perspective um, to generally our outlook on hotels. And we are very open with our investors in that you know, we might not be the ones that give you the highest returns from a cash on cash perspective, but we're going to invest and provide our team members with great benefits. We are going to have nice hotels that you're going to be proud of. You're going to get a quarterly newsletter from us that's going to detail to you some of our team members' growth stories and personal journeys and what they've gone through and their tenure with us. And when you get those returns on cash, there's going to be a feel good aspect to it also. Um, and a pride of ownership aspect to it also that, you know, if that appeals to you, then, you know, let's talk and go down this road. But if it doesn't, we totally respect that, but we're probably not the right company for you then. Absolutely. Uh, my buddy uh, was the owner, part, was the owner and a CFO of a very big safe company. And, you know, he had several private, they were growing so fast that the private equity funds would come in and then they would make their return in like 18 months and they would move on. Right. And mm. uh, yet he experienced a lot of different attitudes and, you know, everything from, you know, just so happy and grateful to, you know, just drill harder, faster, you know, and, and, you know, 
when you take on leverage, you give away some freedom and you've got to have the right leverage, the, the right partner, because it's just, they've got something over you and, you know, you don't want it to feel that way. You don't want them to be putting the thumb to you. And we've bootstrapped our business to this point because we just honestly haven't wanted to, that having a leverage partner is like, you know, in some ways having a boss, you know? <laughs> so I didn't mm. want to have a boss, you know? I just, mm. I don't want to deal with it. I just want to. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. They have questions and they, you know, they also want to make sure, especially some of our larger partners and they deserve to have yeah. their voices heard. Sure. Um, we find the value in that, however, to be as we get bigger, um, you know, there's a place for diversity of opinion. Um, sometimes the result of those diverse opinions is that the best idea eventually bubbles up to the top. And it also re results in us not just reinforcing what we're thinking already, right? Yeah. And convincing ourselves to go down a path that may not be optimal because we're just basically reinforcing our own thinking. Yeah. And that you got to watch that one. Mm. That, that's probably the scariest thing because it's like such a blind side, you know, yep. you don't even realize you're doing it and everybody's on the same page. And, you know, that, that's, that to me is the scariest thing. And, uh, it makes me want, we've, we've discussed having like a group of advisors just at some level, um, but and we started to pull the trigger on it, but then you know it's just one more thing to do. So yeah, want to run the business, but I you know, think it adds value. Tommy, sometimes with growth, what happens, and and we're, you know, having quality investors and having you know like what we have set up and are starting to set up in terms of an executive committee, it's important because your business can outgrow you, <laughs> and I never thought that was possible um, until the last few years. But you get so caught up running your business one way um, that it outgrows you. Um, it's no different than I would compare it to working out the same way every day. Yep. Eventually that workout, even though you're exercising, begins to lose its effect because yep. your body adjusts and adopts to it. And it's no longer providing you with value it's sometimes it's the same with your businesses you get used to running it one way and that one way has been very successful because it got you to this point but it's not going to get you from this point to the next point and uh that i think is a very 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 challenging adjustment to make um um you know it's almost like going from writing with your right hand to now trying to write with your left hand. And, you know, it's sometimes it's, it's, it's very hard. And I can see why businesses on the, on the surface, it's, it's easy to talk about, you know, adjusting and adapting to your business and your leadership style to your business as it grows, but it's very hard to do because, you know, we get, all of us get used to doing things one way. Oh yeah, I mean the hardest jump in anything, technology, uh, management, um, is always one to two. 
Mm. Like, you know, the guy who goes from being, uh, you know, the best waiter trying to be a, now a restaurant manager always struggles because now they're responsible for more than just themselves. The person who goes from one unit to two units, that is a bigger jump than two to a hundred units. And that's the same thing in coding. Uh, when you're building a program, one being able to handle one use case to two going from one use case to two use cases, the variability in that requires infinitely more programming and consideration of all the options, but then two to a million is just Ram and processor speed. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it, that is an interesting part of life just in general. Um, let's go into number four real quick. What is the one thing you thought the industry would be doing right now that it isn't? Um, I, I would have thought by now all of the major franchisors would have um, keyless entry and digital check-in. Hmm. Um, and that would be prevalent across the board. Um, where your room key card, you can check in off your phone you don't need to stop at the front desk you go straight to your room and check out that way and i thought that would be the norm um across the industry um and that would happen a lot faster even prior to covid i thought it would have i think prior to covid i thought in the labor shortages we're now experiencing that it would happen a lot faster than what it has yeah, I mean, it's just such a no-brainer and it's such a great labor savings because you won't need two, three, or four people at the front desk. You can have one, you can cut that by maybe half, you know? And then as and then with the app too, you know, why wouldn't you just have, instead of having someone have to ring up the waters and like the little food and that, that thing, just have it delivered to the room, you know what I mean? And yeah. like, and then just have them pay on the phone and, and real-time inventory. Yeah, I, I agree. I've had Marriott on my phone. I have the watch. I, I, I think I've tried it maybe one time. And they always tell me, check in on check in early on your phone, right? But then it doesn't mean anything because I have to wait in line to get my keys. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's kind of, it, that, I could see that for sure. It was so yeah. funny because as you were saying that, I was thinking keyless entry, keyless entry. <laughs> yeah. I've used it a few times times when it has worked and sometimes it just doesn't work it says it's not working and i love it i don't have to stop at the front desk i can go straight to my room get situated get checked in and if i have questions then it seems like there's less of a crowd at the front desk of course on local area attractions or local area restaurants that front desk person is freed up then to really be attentive to that and just not give me a piece of paper that you know, yeah. tell me all the restaurants within five miles without any kind of, of course, thing. which yeah. is such an antiquated thing anyways, because everyone's got Yelp on their phone or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Google Maps. Yeah. So, okay. Well, we are wrapping up here. That's a great, great answer to that question, by the way. Um, like, give me a war story. I want a cringe worthy, funny. I can't believe we got through this type of story. Uh -huh. uh, if you got one. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> I have a lot, but, one that always comes to mind was uh, during the downturn, we, 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 we just, you know, we wanted to keep going and 
we wanted to stay very engaged with our lenders and provide value and 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 so we had one of our lenders said they would work with us on loan terms if we oh, i'm sorry about that. I, sorry about that i forgot to turn off my stuff but one of our lenders said he they would work with us on loan terms if we took over a foreclosed hotel that was very old very run down um the owner just left. This was back in 2009. Wow. And we did, and you know, we were able to ramp the hotel and um, do, do well there. But three months into it, there's a space shuttle launch. And the launch is on Valentine's Day, Saturday. Um, our computers are unbeknownst to me because there were so many fires that we had to put out are full of dust and they crash <laughs> and it's president's day weekend i think it's daytona 500 all that stuff <laughs> and the next thing i know um we're you know we've way overbooked ourselves um my wife is calling because we have dinner reservations and the hotel is about a two hour drive from home asking, you know, when she should expect me to be home because we needed to leave by around, you know, I think we, the reservations were for seven 30 and she's starting from around six ish, you know, calling and texting and asking what time I want to be home. Um, and uh, by the time, you know, the systems come back on, I get a hold of her at nine o'clock and say, I'm at, still at the hotel. And obviously, you know, we're going to have to reschedule. Um, and then finding, navigating through that on a weekend that was really busy in Florida. So there was not a lot of hotels, if any, that we could send people to that had rooms available um, without pissing people off and, and and that is probably one of several war stories that i will always remember i think it was finally at around 2 30 in the morning that we got it fully resolved and i'm of the mindset is that you know when there's an issue the leader has to own it so I stayed with our team there um, and until we got it resolved, fully resolved and got, got everyone taken care of. Wow. That's a good one. That is a good one. Old dusty computers. It was, I was watching that documentary on the last blockbuster and how they have all these computers that you can't even get anymore and they have to clean them out and like, you know, borrow parts and you know, it's just insane. It's the same thing. Well, Azim, thank you so much for coming on today and taking the time to uh, share your story with us. It was really great, and I, and I really enjoyed our conversation today. And for all you guys that are listeners of the Order Up show, we are we had a little, like, I think summer vacation lull in the podcast, but we're coming back strong and uh, be looking for some new episodes. Thanks, guys. Tommy, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.